0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to your latest episode of Nuclear Barbarians. It is I am your Nuclear Barbarian, and I'm excited today because we're doing a little bit of a departure from nuclear, which I think is important every now and again. And it is not the only energy source in our world. There are many others, and many of them are important. And we are not going to be talking about nuclear in the Western context or energy in the Western context we are going to talk about Africa specifically Ethiopia and specifically hydro in Ethiopia and I have a guest to talk to us about this who I'm really excited to have this is William uh, from Crisis Group What is up man How's it going
1: I'm doing well Emmett and yeah thanks very much for, for inviting me and um, very much looking forward to, to having this having this chat.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So before we get into like everything we're going to get into with the situation, I want to know a little bit more about Crisis Group and I'd love to know a little bit more about you. So what is Crisis Group? What do you guys do over there?
1: Cool. Yeah. So I think certainly the least interesting aspect of all this is me. So I'll be pretty brief about, about that. Totally. Crisis Group Crisis Group's a bit more interesting as an international NGO, donor funded NGO, gets a lot of money from governments, but also from various foundations and, and stuff. And I should know this a bit more expertly, but I think it was it was basically set up in the kind of aftermath or dying days of the Balkans crisis. And I think mm. some big players in the international system, including, I think, Richard Holbrook, I, you know, they were like, we need an organization that acts as something of an early warning um, mechanism for the international system. Like we need something which is analyzing politics and telling mm-hmm. us when, basically shit is about to hit the fan and 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 you know because i think people were kind of blindsided to some extent by by the balkans crisis right totally slavia and so that's its function so, uh, so obviously it focuses on 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 conflict but also on any anywhere where there's sort of deadly political violence or you know, which could turn into conflict and then we have people like me so i'm the ethiopia senior analyst so we have dedicated country experts Obviously, we follow the politics and you know, we are doing research. And then we put that research and provide analysis in the form of papers that are freely available. And then we do a bunch of like private and public advocacy work. So you, you give a lot of media interviews. You also speak to diplomats and, and mm-hmm, stakeholders mm-hmm. and governments and, and stuff to you know, obviously seek their views, but also give your views. And I think where we where we one, one major component of what we do and obviously something which upsets people is we also offer recommendations, policy mm. about what we think people should do as well, and, and and with regards to me, so I, I was a, a journalist in in the UK, like worked in the local. I'm, I'm a Brit and from from Cambridge. I worked in local newspapers in in Cambridgeshire for the first three years of my career, and then I moved out to Ethiopia and got the uh, Bloomberg stringer position in 2010 in Addis Ababa. So I was their Ethiopia correspondent. I did that for for seven years. Then the politics started getting kind of crazy around 2014, 15. So I started doing other freelancing, focusing a bit more on politics. And then I actually set up my own website after quitting Bloomberg in mm. 2017. I was doing other different types of journalism. I set up my own website, Ethiopia, which is very much still still running. And it was kind of subsequent to that that I got the crisis group position because of the profile and experience and, and knowledge and contacts I had. Um, so I became the crisis group senior analyst for Ethiopia in 2019. And here I am today. There's also stuff about deportations and things, but we don't have to Getting that. I'm based in Nairobi these days, not at this other, like that.
0: Okay, cool. So that's exciting. All right. I'm really unfamiliar with the African context. So I'm going to need your help a little bit filling in the African context because I don't know a lot about that history and we don't need to get too, too deep into it. But before we talk about a major infrastructural project that Impacts not just Ethiopia but the region. I was wondering if you could kind of tell us like what's going on generally in that neighborhood.
1: Yeah, this is obviously it's a tricky one to to summarize. I suppose that's I guess some key key things to understand is that Ethiopia is a very large sub-Saharan African country. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's the world's largest landlocked nation, actually by population. Wow. I believe. There's, I mean, there's you know, there's obviously there's some. Complexity to that, I used to have access to the sea, but it lost, when Eritrea but used to be a former Ethiopian province, became independent mm. in 1993, Ethiopia lost its access to the sea. But anyway, um, Ethiopia is a very large African country. It has about 110 million people, so only Nigeria is bigger. But Ethiopia is the overwhelming, you know, dominant country in the Horn of Africa by geography. So Horn of Africa generally comprises Somalia, Djibouti, Eritrea, Sudan, um, South Sudan, and, and Ethiopia. Sometimes people will include Kenya, I suppose, and you know, the Horn of Africa ultimately is you know, quite, a, quite, a, quite a troubled region, quite a conflict prone region, quite fragile. I guess it's notable, you know, I mentioned Eritrea's uh, secession, You know, became independent in mm-hmm. 1993, but of course we also had the creation of, of South Sudan in, in 2011, if I recall correctly, after a very long war with, with Khartoum. And then we also have the kind of, the sort of quasi state of, of, of Somaliland, you know, which has a government mm-hmm. and a currency and an army and stuff, but just no one's recognized it as a, as a nation state. So that's a sort of, I guess formally it's a very autonomous province of Somalia, but it has all the trappings of a nation state. So you can see that it's quite troubled of the world, even in terms of like the integrity mm-hmm. of, of the nation states. I'm not, I'm not sure like where else to take this, I mean, you know, Ethiopia has had a period of, of, of like relatively rapid growth, a lot of infrastructural investment that we can go into, but you know I think if people know about Ethiopia, they will know it for being you know a country which has suffered famines and, and is generally and it you know, definitely still has you know, very low per capita incomes. It's also mm-hmm. a very rich, rich country in terms of its resources in terms of its, of its culture, in terms of its history as well it has this sort of ancient um, orthodox christian civilization it's a multi-religious nation has a very large muslim population yeah. it's ethnically and culturally incredibly diverse which you know, also you know, creates political problems because i think that the management and the, the accommodation of that diversity is unsettled in mm-hmm. ethiopia and that very much contributes to some of the political problems politics is to a large degree organized around identity mm-hmm. in ethiopia and so i know i'm getting a bit fixated on ethiopia rather than africa but i think it's important to understand. No, 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 that, this is great. Okay, yeah, so, so it's important to understand that Ethiopians are understandably incredibly proud of this. They were mm. not colonized, and indeed they fought off Italian attempts in, in 1896, famously, the Battle of, of Adwa. Now, there was an Italian occupation of Ethiopia by Mussolini and his, his fascists, so the 36th to forty one. but essentially Ethiopia was, was never colonized the way that other um, countries were. So they're very, very proud of that. Ethiopia was an imperial state itself. So there was, mm. there was very powerful, you know, mainly Christian kingdoms in the north of the country. And then as sort of your know, power was, was consolidated, then there was an, ex- an expansion from those northern you know, centers of, of power. And they incorporated other elements of what is now Ethiopia into you know, what became the modern nation state. So a lot of that happened during the time of the European imperial expansion. Late 19th century created modern-day Ethiopia, but also led to allegations and uh, perceptions by some of these incorporated people that they were simply the subjects mm. of this imperial state, and that they weren't ever treated as, you know, equal Ethiopian citizens. And obviously, those those claims of, of legitimacy. I mean, they 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 were part of an, an imperial state. Orthodox Christianity was a state religion. You had an mm. emperor who ruled because of his divine, he ruled absolutely because of his divine rights. And the the reason for stating this is that that sort of creation of modern day Ethiopia led to a kind of explosion of of identity based politics in the 60s and the 70s. That led to an explosion of ethno-national liberation movement. And there was a popular revolution in nineteen. 74, but without getting too stuck in the detail, you know, the, the way that, they, that Ethiopians tried to manage this was that in the 1990s, they put together what is known as a multinational or ethnic federation, not that mm. dissimilar to the Soviet Union or, 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 or Yugoslavia, both obviously no longer, as a way to try and manage the country's diversity. So allowing a lot of auto- autonomy. For regions which had a strong kind of identity or ethnic character to them, but that but that system in itself is quite controversial and and yeah generally like that that system of ethnic politics and ethnic state structures is highly valued by those groups and political organisations which really and promote their identity and autonomy, whilst others see it as you know as a blow to Ethiopia's national character and its national unity right. and integrity of the state so you have those kind of political divisions right
0: so we have sort of if i'm hearing you right we have entrenched faction problems that are both historical and cultural but now also formalized to a degree by the attempt to ventilate those factional problems themselves
1: yeah that's very very nicely put yeah
0: okay okay no that's interesting so that seems like a difficult context for major infrastructural projects to (laughs) arise because even when you have states that have greater cultural or whatever unanimity, it is still hard to get everyone to the table to agree on major projects. Is that what happens with this dam?
1: Yeah, so I say, so I say when we say this, this dam right we need to um explain yeah, yeah, we yeah yeah perhaps
0: yeah i'm getting ahead of myself
1: here yeah so let's talk about the
0: dam <laughs> and then we'll get into that question uh and we'll start yeah. to tie it all together so this dam what is it where is it you know what's the deal
1: yeah no so i think i think we've done well here i think i got a little a tiny bit like tangled in in, in the weeds there but you got us out of, of that so I, can, I think we can now lead up quite neatly to the to the dam itself so I was describing this you know, federation where, you know, you have a bunch of like autonomous units you know, with quite different, you know, they have these ethnic characters to them. So this was basically counteracted, as occurred in other similar systems. This was counteracted by a very strong and essentially authoritarian ruling coalition. Mm. So it was a four party coalition made up of the ruling parties from the four most powerful regions. You had a bunch of other power, uh, other ruling parties from other regions, but they were less populous. Now, the, the, the point about this is, is that this was the sort of like the glue that held the Federation together. And it did, in, it did so in a pretty like classically sort of Marxist-Leninist authoritarian party style. Also bred a lot of resentment, as, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. It was a very, very controlling structure. And really the dominant character in this was, was Prime Minister Meles, and he's a rebel leader from a province in the north called Tigray. He ran a party called the Tigray People's Liberation Front, um, still a you know, major feature in Ethiopian politics because it's involved in the ongoing civil war. But you know, w- without getting going down that tangent, this party, we'll, we'll just call it the EPRDF, the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, this coalition, it was very, very dominant. And you know, there, there, were, there were times when there were signs of the system opening up and it kind of tolerating pluralism and, and disdainment. And then it kind of clamped down and, and, and just you know, continued to co- really completely control. But you know, this was not a kleptocratic regime. right? Mm. It was incredibly controlling. It was, it was, but it was, you know, it was a leftist regime, very strong ideas about the, the, the need for the, for the state to play a prominent role in the economy, especially for a developing country like Ethiopia, um, a very strong focus on the rural masses. Mm. You know, how are we going to improve the life of the average Ethiopian farmer? who is just farming on a tiny plot of land and is basically engaged in subsistence farming. So trying to improve those basic services, health, education, um, all sorts of agricultural input programs. None of it like, none of it like brilliantly efficient, but, but you know, basically quite a lot of good intention mm-hmm. um, in terms of investing the country's kind of fairly meager resources and taking whatever foreign resources they could get to invest in basic services to help the lot of the average Ethiopian. So very authoritarian, very controlling, civil liberties nowhere to be seen, really, but quite a strong focus, you know, somewhat China style, I guess, on these on these development objectives, right? So this is sort of broadly describes the, the system. And then what happened in 2010 is there was an even bigger crackdown on the opposition in the preceding years. And then mm. he said, you know, it's time to go for broke here. Like what Ethiopia needs is a gigantic public investment program in vital infrastructure, right? So we need universities we need roads we need we need sugar factories you name it we need it and the other thing we need is dams we need big dams and we, they already had a dam building program we want to scale that up because we lack energy you know, that mm-hmm. is one of the areas where we're completely deficient we're deficient in all sorts of you know, vital infrastructure and but we also want to capitalize on it while Ethiopia's main sort of Assets or comparative advantages, which is it is actually blessed with your multiple river basins, and it has this very kind of dramatic topography, which creates a lot of hydropower potential. Right? Oh, so it's something, yeah. like it's something like there's something like forty five thousand gigawatts of hydropower potential, and, and this is where the, wow. the, the, the sort of the, the, the big dam projects stem from. That, but please do come in. Yeah,
0: no, I just want to point out for listeners that this is a pretty standard playbook for development. Like right or left or whatever, we can even take a look at North America, Canada and America for saying we need to improve the lot of our subsistence farmers and we need a lot more electrification and things like that. I mean, that is straight out of the New Deal playbook and looking around and taking a look at what your best river resources are for that is something that developed nations did on their way to becoming developed. So Ethiopia here seems to be playing by the historical rules, so to speak, in terms of how its government sees that it needs to go about this project.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's abs- abs- absolutely right. And in comparisons with the Hoover Dam have been made with the, the project that we're not quite talking about yet, which is the <laughs> grand, you know, Renaissance Dam. But I think I just wanted to finish by saying, you know, as much as this ruling coalition was like this kind of, you know, authoritarian force, which held together a quite some sort of, quite sort of centrifugal tendencies in the federation, when they launched this infrastructure public investment program around 2010, mm-hmm. Also, that was kind of to get beyond ethnic politics by, you know, Mm. people who were essentially proponents of identity politics, but they were also saying, you know, we we need to do something as a nation, like our common enemy is poverty, regardless of our ethnicity and our culture. And, you know, the one thing we can all get behind is this to utilize these resources, particularly our water and hydropower resources, and then particularly the Nile, because Mm. Ethiopia is is the source of, of the majority of the Nile's waters. Uh, the Blue Nile is the major tributary, and it originates in Ethiopia. And, and for centuries and, and, and decades, Ethiopia believed that it had been denied the right to really benefit from, mm. from, from this resource. So that was the kind of context to when Mele's launched the dam. So I guess we need to move on to, to that. To we've that. arrived
0: and we've done the preface. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So a good way to tell this is that, you know, obviously as a, as a Bloomberg reporter, I used to you know, try and follow the local press. So it was a very interesting story one day and uh, this reporter called Tesfalem, he, he reported you know, from the, some government source that Project X was being considered by the Ethiopian government, a major hydropower project on the Blue Nile. I thought that was pretty interesting. We had a very rare press conference coming up with Meles as the you know, international press corps and, and I was privileged enough to attend you know, Melez. A, you know, a spectacular politician and statesman and a historical figure and um, so really kind of felt you know privileged to be there I mean, he's an incredibly controversial figure as well lots of he did have mm-hmm. been opponents and he, you know, he died very prematurely just a year later at the age of 57 wow but uh, i didn't know what to ask but i was working for bloomberg and you know we're looking for big economic stories so i said to melez i was pretty nervous i said so i've been reading the local you know, the local rag, and they're talking about this project X, you know is this a real thing, Mr. Prime Minister? and he confirmed it you know and that was the first public announcement of you know what was to become the grand Ethiopian Renaissance dam, and this you know, was just a very kind of you know, relatively a very very significant thing because it was by far Ethiopia's biggest ever infrastructure mm-hmm. project, it turned out to be the absolute centerpiece of this infrastructural building program, this public mm-hmm. investment program, you forget the railways and everything else, the other dams, the sugar factories. This was it, you know, gigantic projects. Initially, I think they said it was going to be 6,000. They said it was going to be a 6,000 megawatt dam and creating an you know, absolutely huge reservoir and this type of thing. And so not, but not only was it very, very significant for Ethiopia, like it was immediately obvious that this would have kind of uh, regional kind of you know, geopolitical implications because a, a dam of such size on the main tributary of the Nile was always going to cause a lot of consternation downstream, particularly you know, in, in Egypt, which mm-hmm. is so incredibly heavily, heavily reliant on, on the Nile. So that's really where the story of the GERD starts, certainly for me, um, with that press conference with Melez in 2011 when it was when it was announced.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. So there are a lot of interesting things happening there. I mean, yeah, if people are downstream from you and you're going to dam a river, they're going to have a lot to say about that. <laughs> you know, and it, I mean, these infrastructure projects, they take a long time. Often they take a lot of money. And so you need steady commitment and consensus over time so <laughs> that the money keeps flowing until it's completed. That is a challenge for anybody. And I'm wondering if Ethiopia starts to run into challenges of that type as they're building it. It seems like some controversial things happen, including one of the managers getting shot in a car, if I remember rightly. So how is it received chief, the chief time? engineer, Yeah, the, the chief, chief engineer. engineer. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I think that, you know, we're in 2022 now, right? Yes. And the thing, the thing's not built. So kind of like testimony to what you just said about a big, these, these type of big projects and the, and the challenge that was presented. So it was more than a decade on. But, you know, I think in, in many ways, it was a sort of both you know, kind of political masterstroke. You know, it was a real mm. ga- gambit by, by Mele's. And that was for two reasons. One was because regardless of Ethiopia's political or societal divisions, they all backed this project pretty much. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you, don't, you don't meet too many Ethiopians who said, yeah, this is, no, that's a bad idea. They absolutely backed it. That's amazing. Um,
0: that's amazing it, that an energy source could trump whatever sectarian stuff is going on in society. I think that speaks to it being a political masterstroke, as you've said. It's a, it, yeah, not is it, it just a great play politically, but it also shows how everyday people can recognize their own energy interests.
1: Yeah, I think so, and, and yeah, and there's all this sort of historical resonance in Ethiopia—the the belief that they've been denied the rights to use the Nile by by Egypt and the colonial masters, the mm-hmm. Ottomans, the Brits, and all the rest of it. But also, just like you're saying, you know, and, and it was a very—it you know, it was a government and a ruling party that was very dominant. Melez was a very dominant figure. They sold it as the, you know, the centerpiece of Ethiopia's renaissance, right? So you're speaking to people's national pride. You're also saying that we all face our number one enemy is is poverty and this project is going to help us overcome it so you've got all the ingredients there and then you've also got a government which was you know pretty crude but pretty good at propaganda and mobilization mm-hmm. as well so and then there was another specific thing that they that they did which is they they, they literally got people's buy-in to the dam by um mm. selling 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 bonds for it yeah now you know i'm not Sure, that this really raised the type of capital you need for a five billion dollar project of this nature. But they got a lot of Ethiopians to buy some pretty small denomination bonds. So the people were literally invested mm-hmm. in in the project. It also speaks to the project's popularity, but it was also another kind of canny move um, by by Melez and his government to get to get people support for it. So I think the point is that. Yeah, there was a lot of opposition in, in Egypt. There's a lot of people like me saying, like, oh, like, this is going to be very expensive, very challenging. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Sure, this is the right way to invest your scarce resources because that's the job of like people, you know, people like me. But essentially, you know, it got off to a pretty good, good start on its mm-hmm. own terms.
0: But then I'm guessing some speed bumps start to happen along the yeah, way. Yeah, I mean,
1: I, yeah, and I think, you know, it, it, is, it is a long story. And I think, you know, a lot of the a lot of the initial drama and, and, and throughout has been related to the regional aspects of this.
0: Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Yeah, so Egypt is not happy.
1: <laughs> no, Egypt's not happy. And, and what, what Ethiopia did is, is they sort of agreed to convene an international panel of experts on the dam. I think it's sort of three experts from each country, you know, Sudan, Egypt, Ethiopia, and then three neutrals, obviously a bunch of engineers and experts mm-hmm. and hydrologists and stuff. And they studied the project because Ethiopia, this was a bit of a fate complete, right? They just sprang this upon people. And you know, I guess what- Yeah, it was called
0: Project but, X after all.
1: It was called Project <laughs> X, yeah. And so they, they did start it without telling anyone. But I think that one of the things that I haven't explained is because this was a, a symbol of Ethiopia's renaissance and Ethiopia's, the, the end of Ethiopia's dependency, they were trying to portray it as such. And therefore they said it was self-financed. So they never sought kind of World Bank or European Investment Bank wow. or- African development bank funding, right? And that meant there was sort of less due diligence commitment. So they hadn't really done all of like the environmental social impact studies and and this type of thing that you would have to do if you go for multilateral finance. The the problem with this was that it created even greater suspicion and sort of justification for opposition by these downstream nations. They're saying, we have no idea about this project. You know, is it going to be Mm safe? What's going to be the impact, whether in terms of ecosystems or water supplies and, and you, know, you, you name it, other people had concerns about displacement, including the usual suspects from the NGO sector. And so one of the things that Ethiopia did in response, they agreed to convene this international panel of experts. And actually in another like, notable part of my pretty like, unnotable journalistic career was that when this expert panel finalized its report, they could, as often they couldn't agree on, on publishing it, because they, couldn't, you know, they didn't want to publish it, they couldn't reach consensus. Mm-hmm. But someone leaked it. To me, I imagine someone from Cairo, and we did a the report on it for Bloomberg, and the Ethiopian government got, got pretty upset. But essentially, the, 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 the panel of experts said, we don't really have enough information about this dam yet. You know, the Ethiopian government really hasn't done its due diligence in terms of working out what is going to be the impact on the hydrological system, what is going to be the social environmental, the broader social environmental impact assessment of this dam. More studies need to be done. So then, everyone tried to spin it from their perspective. The Ethiopians said that they've assessed that there's no problem with the dam. The Egyptians said that the Ethiopians basically don't know what they're doing, um, <laughs> and and and, you know, and things things went on from there. And there was a sort of then there was a sort of subsequent agreement between the three parties to set up a kind of trilateral negotiation process. So you know things got off to a good start, like I say, from Ethiopia in terms of the, the public support in terms of really putting their downstream, the downstream countries on the back foot. But then they also, I think, suffered from this quite sort of secretive, quite unilateral, quite ultimately rushed approach, you know, because this, mm-hmm. this was not just an engineering project. This was also you know, a big political statement as well. And I think they also kind of got themselves into a bit, a bit of trouble because of that approach.
0: Wow, yeah. I mean, this, uh, this is also just so, and we don't have to have to get into this here, but I, it's worth mentioning that this is so fascinating because it's also what happens to sovereignty when you have so many neighbors, there are natural resources that stretch across borders, and then you also have an international NGO complex, and they have their own thing to say. I mean, as you would know, Crisis Group is one of those groups that has things to say about certain issues. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's inconvenient. Sometimes maybe it's even bad, but it shows how difficult it is to negotiate a project like this.
1: Yeah, no, it's absolutely. And, and I think, you know, it, it is an assertion of, it was an assertion of, of sovereignty and, and, and power by, by Ethiopia's government. And, but obviously you know, that's, that it's not all one-way traffic, you know, it's, it's, you know, they, yeah. they, they, they're, 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 they're facing powerful opponents. And I think, you know, with international water law and transboundary water courses, you've got these kind of like the relevant kind of principles are you, you, you can do it. You can use your own resource, transboundary resource, don't cause significant harm to mm-hmm. your downstream neighbors. Right. And then it's like, yeah, you could use your water, for your own development and, and, you know, to create jobs and, and all the rest of it. But it has to be kind of reasonable and equitable utilization of a shared resource. Yes. But the thing is, but this is international law, right? This is just a bunch of principles that people get to argue about. And then, you are then power, but then it's all about power politics in, in the end, right? Right. You know, who, right.
0: Who, who, it, who enforces, they're more like guidelines than laws.
1: <laughs> yeah. And who enforces international law? You know, what does the rule of law have to do with the UN Security Council's makeup and decision making yeah. dynamics? You know, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so it's, it is. It is a bit of the law of the jungle, and so really, what this was Ethiopia asserting itself and saying, "What are you going to do about it? Like, this is our justifications for, for it. You know, mm-hmm. We get we get to utilize our own water resources. This is the way we overcome poverty yeah. with our, our own money, people. too. That's with our own money. That's yeah. I think
0: hugely yeah. important and cannot be undersold.
1: And, and we yeah, we're going, we're doing this for our, for our own benefits, but you know, we're not going to harm you. We're going to, we're going to abide by those international principles. And also it's a hydropower project, right? It's, it's like when it's up and running, it's a non-consumptive yes. use of water. Like the more mm-hmm. electricity that Ethiopia generates, the more water that flows downstream. So these were the, you know, these were the arguments and the justifications that were drummed into me and, and millions of others by the Ethiopian government as, as justification and then I think the other element that you're, you're potentially interested in here is the, you know, the, the response of you know, some international NGOs to mm-hmm. the project and also the Ethiopian government and people's response to that, right? Yeah. I mean, essentially, you know, what, what happens as, as, you know, as you all well know, is that large dams have become very unfair, And people don't, their, their immediate point of reference is not look at what the Hoover, what role that played in, in, in the U.S.'s economic and industrial development. Instead, it's like, look at that environmental cataclysm in in, in China or or wherever it may be. And obviously, large dams are very destructive in terms of of ecosystems. So what you tend to get is that the projects aren't necessarily treated on their merits. And there's a kind of default opposition to large dams from organizations like International Rivers, also sort of uh, indigenous people focused organizations like Survival International, because obviously there'll be displacement of those mm-hmm. communities will be, will be involved. And then when it comes to a situation like Ethiopia, when you essentially have this quite authoritarian government, which doesn't really have any time for the trappings of, of liberal democracy, and it goes about a project in such a cavalier, secretive, unilateral mm-hmm. fashion. Well, you know, that doesn't just arouse suspicion in an opposition in Cairo. You know, that also you know, makes other people very concerned about it. And this was also the case with other big dams in Ethiopia, especially a notable one in the South, of the country, which you know, did have a big effect in terms of displacing people. So as well as this, you know, regional opposition, because of these water supply concerns, and um, the, the Ethiopian government and, and, and Meles himself, you know, got into these raging ideological power struggles with other foreign adversaries. Mm-hmm. And really, the argument, you know, as I've kind of already stated from the mm-hmm. Ethiopians was, how dare you, you know, right. like we, 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 we don't we don't have much you know like and we've seen how you develop we see how you use your resources we saw the negative side effects of that in fact we're still suffering from it mm-hmm. um, and we're going to suffer from it because of the you know the carbon carbon emissions and 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 all the rest of it how dare you say that we are not allowed to you know, especially to create our own renewable energy resource yeah
0: like you're those, pulling up the ladder basically
1: you're pulling up the ladder and also it just doesn't make sense in terms of mm-hmm. you know those those border and the climate change debates as well. So the problem was that you know, there was this lack of due diligence from Ethiopia and, and still to this day we don't really know that much about the impact mm. of this project. But then some of the attacks on, on, on the project, on the government from these various quarters, you can also see that there is you, you, you could make a case that the Ethiopian cause is is a just one, that they, they, they had not benefited from this resource. It was non-consumptive and they were doing it for the right reasons, which was to try and overcome overcome, overcome poverty. And I think generally you know certainly the Ethiopian government wasn't has never been swayed from its path mm-hmm. um, from this project. and even we, we can talk about some of the you know, the political turbulence, but even with the different administration and leadership coming to power, there was never any doubt that they would essentially support this project because of that, like it's, 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 it's popular ex- acceptance in Ethiopia.
0: Interesting, okay. Yeah, so I guess my, my next question is, is where in 2022, it's been 10 years, like yeah. how near or far is the end of this dam and how do the Ethiopian people seem to feel I'm sure there's more than one feeling from more than one group of people within Ethiopia about the progress of the dam.
1: Yeah, so I think the sort of the, the sad thing almost is that this sort of diplomatic game of you're trying to sort of head off, you know, Egyptian attempts to get the UN Security Council to look at the project, or and and generally kind of assert Ethiopia's sovereignty. Um, the U.S., the Trump administration got very involved in negotiations. It's it like these mini battles are won and they, and they kind of become, they, they sort of become the focus of Ethiopian mm. energy. But then you've got the actual project, it's, which, you know, is, is delayed and, and there's still a long way to go for Ethiopians really to benefit from it. So let me like, try and unpack some of that. I think the, the diplomatic focus for years now has been to get a deal, right? A deal on the filling and operating rules for the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. And wow. so that kind of Ethiopia, and they, they all agree on how much e- water Ethiopia is going to put in the reservoir during the impoundment period. They Obviously, they agree on like dispute resolution processes, the legal side of things, but they also agree on how the GERD will be used in the, mm. in the event of, of drought, how it will be used to mitigate drought. So all of these sort of different aspects. And so this has been the focus of, of negotiations with a bunch of like African and international involvement for years now. And then as they failed to, to reach agreement, you know, it's, it's sort of raised the diplomatic mm. tensions essentially. And this really has become, has become the, the, the focus of, of things. And I think, you know, many Ethiopians, you know, there's, there's no questions to be asked them. Many of them still um, consider Egypt's stance, for example, to be mm. very un, unjust and, and to be very supportive of Ethiopia's right to, to build the thing. Then, then you've got the actual construction of this you know, gigantic engineering project. And as, and as you sort of noted, like you know, I, I first reported that they would generate your know, initial power from two turbines in 2015. That didn't happen. It happened like two months ago where they started mm. early generation from two lower set turbines. We've got 13 turbines no one's really clear on the state of construction with them. And as you can imagine, these electromechanical components are by far the most expensive, most technically demanding, most time-consuming elements of the project. There's obviously massive civil works to be done, but it's, you know, like a far less sophisticated stuff. So, you know, the structure is, is to a large degree in place. Um, the filling process has been going on for a couple of years but we only have 2 out of 13 turbines installed the idea of the gerd also the renaissance dam the gerd we call it was that it would make ethiopia into a sort of regional electricity hub mm. right so it produces it, it's supposed to produce 15,000 gigawatt hours of power and that's double what ethiopia produces now right so you could see wow. the impact that they're going to have on, on the Ye- economy also, that's I, and a I ton- could see that's- how,
0: if that's those are the numbers, everybody was just like, "Yeah, okay, do whatever you need to do."
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, that's that's a ton, and then but then you'd need a lot of like industrial investment. You'd also need to reconnect a lot of you'd need you. need to trans- a lot like of- you need
0: transmission. You need balancing. You need all of the things that a grid's going to have because I think the thing people uh, forget sometimes is that grids are going to have generation, transmission, and distribution and those things need to be balanced so yeah. you can't just build a huge generation project and then be like all right done like we can all go home <laughs> we have our 13 turbines running like that's going to have to go somewhere people are going to have to monitor that 24 7. like that's a whole project unto itself
1: yeah and then I, yeah no absolutely and then so realistically in Ethiopia, you're also talking about just like an urbanization uh, project mm-hmm. almost right because you've got 80 something like 80 percent of the country population still living in some sort of fairly like dispersed rural settlements, right? Mm-hmm. So if, you, if you're going to connect them all up to the grid, going to be much easier if they're living in much more kind of agglomerated settlements. So that's mm-hmm. all part of the, of the project here. But also what I was getting to is that you know, the idea is that this would produce a surplus for sale, for export, and therefore Ethiopia could, could generate some foreign currency. You know, it doesn't have that many valuable exports, just like commodity and uh, mm-hmm. coffee and sesame and also Ethiopian Airlines is a big foreign Currency mm-hmm. earner, and so they were hoping to turn you know, it into a sort of cash cow as well. But then, you, again, like as, you know, in line with what you were saying, then you need to build the transmission lines. Some of that's been done. You know, the World Bank's done some, the African Development Bank. But then you also need to strike the power deals with your neighbors. Well, they haven't been doing that. You know, they've just been arguing with their neighbors about their their right to build the project. So it's all these like incredibly important nuts and bolts to make this investment in the project that Ethiopians were so happy to do. But to actually get returns from that, all of these different pieces have to fall, in, fall into place. First, you need to just install the turbine to start generating some power. Then you need to have somewhere to send the power. Like, Is it going to all these like, villages, like homesteads? Presumably not. Like, There was some manufacturing investment, but then that's died off, partly because of the political problems. It, and we don't mm-hmm. have the export deals in place because that yeah. kind of regional side of things has really been a massive problem.
0: Yeah, so just to... Just, I don't want to do, I I am going to do, but maybe not in the typical American way, the thing that we (laughs) use, I use American history to talk about this. And I only want to do this because in the West, we are already developed. America is, you know, insanely wealthy and powerful. And so I think it is easy for us to forget the fights and conflicts that went into that even happening. And one of those are things like the Tennessee Valley Authority, which was a big fight between the federal government, state governments, and private enterprise that had similar elements to what's going on with the fight over GERD in Ethiopia. And I want to point that out because one of the big questions was, what are we going to use all of this hydropower for even? What's going to happen? And eventually you start seeing during the 40s TVA propaganda flyers where water flows into the dam and then like, Spitfire jets come out the other side. And it was the whole idea that electrification was going to make our way into World War II. You know, so an answer soon developed for those questions, but that didn't mean that those were answers that were easy to produce or that were just decided by the people who were managing it. There is always contingency. There are always difficulties. Any state acting in history has to engage with. And I bring all of this up because I don't like the perspective that like, oh, that's just complicated, like that's just like an Africa problem, things are so complicated there. No, it's always complicated for everybody. Now, that I, we don't want to take out all of the specific context of what African nations have to deal with, but I think I would like to put some respect on that type of ambition and some nuance to the types of problems that Ethiopia seems to be encountering as it's trying to do this very large, very difficult project.
1: Yeah, no, I, I sympathize a lot a lot with that. And I think also I think this brings in the kind of like you know, the sort of China versus the West debate in Africa mm. a bit as as well. But it's but essentially it's it's like. You know, in, in in the in these types of environments, right? So to have some sort of misallocated resources, some wastage. Heaven forbid, you know, the, for there to be some corruption and and kickbacks involved in in contracting and some efficiency, mm-hmm. some inefficiencies and some yeah, pay, that never pay. happens here, by the way. Yeah, right. Yeah, and certainly certainly didn't happen back in you know the, yeah, like the, no, the late nineteenth century. <laughs> no, but but but, but it's, I think it's a serious point, and it, you know, it's it, sure. it's about kind of learning from from mistakes and being allowed to make mistakes. And, and yeah. I think it's about you know, am- ambition is absolutely necessary. And, and if, you, if you aren't failing, then you're not kind of trying hard enough and, th- and this type of thing. And I th- so I think these points are absolutely right. And, and, and I think that you know, the, point about, the point about China is that, you know, obviously they've had lots of these, these types of experiences as well. But if you have a gigantic infrastructural deficit, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you don't have transport, communications and power infrastructure, how are you supposed to grow a market economy on the back of that, right? Yeah. So there is, as I understand it, really no alternative to these types of investments. Is the private sector going to come in and do it? No, of course it's not. Like, there's going to have to be considerable public investment in, in, involved. So I think that you're, 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 you're absolutely along the right, right lines there. And I think that's how I've always seen the project. It doesn't mean, of course, that there isn't a role for annoying journalists like 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 me or, sure. or whoever and, sure. and just people people saying like hang on what are you going to do with this power or you know are you sure you're going to you're, you're actually going to build it to that time frame is and... it
0: possible for this to be the base load you think it is
1: yeah exactly uh, yeah no quite yeah stuff in, yes exactly yeah, is fair this, questions is this, is, to is, ask is, is, is this what we need right now because we we've skipped over so much detail because because this became a political project you know Mele's just decided to build the biggest fucking dam that he could, right? But like, <laughs> yeah, for, yeah. for decades, like engineers have been surveying the Blue Nile, and they're like, oh, we could build one here, and then we could build there, like a nice cascade of dams, very neat. When it came to it, they just built the biggest thing they could to make a statement sure, um, sure. to get Ethiopians to rally. But of course, that means you're losing something in terms of efficiency, so people can criticize it on these grounds. The way, again, this lack of due diligence, the relative secrecy, the unilateralism, it does raise concerns about safety as well. I and mean, we have a very reputable international, well, very big reputable international company, Cellini, as the main kind of con- contractor here. So you, you imagine they know what they're doing, but also, like I say, because of some of the, the ways that Ethiopia went about the project, it does raise questions. So it's this question about, you know, just like understanding the difference between the principle and the necessity of that type of approach to, to really combat poverty, to really try and kickstart industrial development because what other option do they have? You know, it's it's accepting that and parking that and remembering that. But then also you've got a, you've also got a very long and convoluted and complicated, you know, political and economic process on the on the back of that, where at, at all sorts of steps along the way, there's lots of reasons to go like, hang on, what's going on here? You know, and, and, notice, you, know, you, and you mentioned the assassination of the project at, at one point, well, sorry, suicide. Uh, so there's all, all sorts of, you know. Sorts of things have gone on. Yeah, exactly.
0: So I want to say this, you know, I'll provide links in the show notes to some of the work Crisis Group has done, some of the things you've written about this, so people can go more deeply into it. And I don't have an answer for this, but this is a trade-off I noticed, or maybe a difficulty in some of the things that you were talking about. And on the one hand, I think it is fair for Egypt and others to say, hey, this was very unilateral and secret. What the hell is going on? On the other hand, I totally understand doing it that way to circumvent what could be a political theater of an investigation process into what the best way to do it is that is only interested in postponing Ethiopia's ambitions because I could see that falling out of the geopolitics of this as well. I think that's a hard thing for anyone to navigate. I certainly, as ignorant as I am on this, have no deeper insights than that. Only that when we're thinking about development in context, I would like to more embody in my own thinking that level of humility of, yeah, this seems to be tense and I don't have all the answers.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I think so. There's all sorts of reasons not to do it, you know. Sure. Like we, we can come up, there's all sorts of risks associated oh, yeah. with The it. safest dam and, that and I,
0: exists is the dam that doesn't exist.
1: Yeah, no, qu- quite. And I think, you know, you, you, you could say all sorts of things. You could, you could, you could make my point about urbanisation. You could say, well, why don't you do that first and then we'll deliver mm-hmm. power to people when they're all in towns. You, you know, you could say, you know, fix your electricity tariff first or, you know, mm-hmm. get, get, get some export, some basic kind of export plan in, in place. But then you just potentially get tied up in, in all these mm-hmm. processes. And, and, and planning and, and, and so I, I, I do sympathize like if, if you're going to get something like this done which is potentially transformative then it, it does speak to the, the, the logic of, of using that type of more unilateral approach where you just say this is our this is our objective we're, we're a sovereign government we have the support of Ethiopian people we're doing it deal with it
0: yeah right yeah yeah and, we're and so, a sovereign country. country like that's the way it is
1: yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know of, you know, of course, there's legitimate and very, very serious downstream concerns. And, yeah. you know, I, I have to be very careful and, and, I, and I do genuinely understand those. And, and also the, there's aspects of Ethiopian unilateralism that have just simply seemed completely unnecessary at mm-hmm. times. But that, that essential, that fundamental initial decision to say what I just said, you know, this is absolutely vital for us as a nation. We're going to do it, deal with it. I think we can all understand the logic on that, of that, when we think about the context in Ethiopia's predicament, or the the predicament of any country like Ethiopia.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's great. So I think we'll end it there. Mm. William, where can people find you? Where can they find crisis groups work? How do they learn more about this?
1: You don't want to hear about the assassination, then we'll leave that for the part well, two.
0: yeah, we'll, we'll leave that for part two. So, I mean, there's just so much the suicide,
1: the suicide, the suicide, the suicide,
0: the suicide, yeah. I mean, there's just so much. Like, you and I could talk about this issue for another four hours, I feel like,
1: yeah. Um, no, no you're, you're right, there's lots of components to it. I don't know how you know Simon you died, but he was a very revered figure in Ethiopia, he was very popular it was a shocking truly shocking event and i i don't actually know, know what happened but it it is part of a much uh, bigger uh, story about how ethiopia's kind of power politics and identity politics how they kind of how it played into the the dam itself but you know once the politics you know at least once a new administration took power they also got behind the project even though it became quite heavily politicized for for a while so yeah i just wanted to to get that in there at least but yeah so uh, obviously like any one of, in my type of profession these days, I have a, a Twitter handle, troll me there. Lots of people do, Emmett. So that's W, <laughs> that's w Davison 10. And yeah, so, you know, you can find all, all, all crisis groups work is, is, is public on, on, on the websites, so such just search crisis group Ethiopia. And then, you know, you, you could also find a Ethiopia insight, the website I set up in 2018 pretty easily as, right. as well with a Google search.
0: Perfect. And those of you who don't want a Google search, go to the show notes i always put this stuff in there <laughs> go to that if you're wondering hey where is that it's in the show notes yeah um, we can
1: we can we can put a couple of links there because there's quite a lot of gaps to fill in i think yeah in absolutely those, I, I, those it, who are interested
0: right and i encourage anybody who's interested to really dive into this i think there's so much to learn it's a fascinating issue listeners like me and i'm sure this is pretty much 100 of my listeners except for the handful of people that hate listen to whatever I have to say. If you're very interested in how to alleviate poverty through energy projects in the developing world, I think there's a lot to take a look at and learn from this Ethiopian example. So William, thanks so much for coming on. Everybody, stay sharp, stay strong, stay radiant, and we will see you next time.